You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. Now, if you guys don't know, You should know that lacrosse is more than just a rubber boot company. Recently, they have expanded to a more traditional hiking hunting boot with their Navigator series. And this Navigator Navigator series has two different types. They have the Windrose for both men and women. And then they also have the Atlas series, which is what I wore all through the rut here in Iowa. So if you want to find out more about their new Navigator series boots, check out lacrosse footwear. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith and Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. All right, guys, welcome back. Adam here. Uh, We have returning um consultant it's been a little bit i know uh we gotta we gotta circle back um haven't heard from our very own kyle hedges uh in the last few podcasts i think the last time was you and i's trip to iowa uh so we got kyle hedges back on kyle thanks for joining us once again yep glad to be glad to be on again yeah so uh as you guys know kyle and frank are consultants with Lana Legacy, as in with Matt and I. Um, we're not a huge company, but we feel like we're doing a, a big impact here. So uh, we've got Kyle and Frank who um, have a long history of managing um, public lands, managing private lands, um, have done a lot of work with Upland Birds. But uh, as, as you guys have heard through past podcasts, done a lot of work um, with Upland Birds. But what you don't know is, they're diehard deer hunters and turkey hunters as well. Um, and so uh, I, I'm afraid that uh, they had this appearance of just being our quail guys, but they're just as knowledgeable with the deer and turkeys as, as we are. So uh, we wanted to shift a little bit and, and go into a deer hunting management with Kyle. Um, did I Anything I left out, Kyle? Um, yeah, I mean, just uh, not only... Frank and I are both deer and turkey hunters, but, you know, we've done a lot of that management as well, uh, not just 
bird management, but overall natural community management and lots of stuff that also is, is beneficial for deer and turkeys in our habitat work for our combined 40 years of professional experience doing that. So. There you go. Um, it is kind of, it's uh, it's always interesting when you talk to somebody because very similar to what Ch- my brother Chad is, he does a lot of work on the public land side, national forest side, um, and working and talking to people. And you guys are doing it here in, in, in Missouri, um, but you're doing it kind of on a public land side. And But at the end of the day, we're all preaching the same message, doing the same stuff, recommending the same practices, restoring native landscapes, and, uh, and using that to manipulate <laughs> deer travel patterns or quail numbers, things like that, uh, whatever the emphasis is on that area. So um, Kyle has got a, uh, a long history of being a deer hunter. What, at what age did you start deer hunting? Actually, so yeah, I didn't even start deer hunting until I was um, a senior in high school. Okay. Um, yeah, so a little late late bloomer for that. We just didn't do it. My dad didn't do it. Um, and in Kansas, so I grew up in Kansas, and you couldn't rifle hunt and bow hunt. You Well, you still, you kind of can now, but anyway, you had to draw for tags, even a resident, even a landowner back then. You had to draw for tags. You weren't guaranteed a tag every year um for for rifle tags so i was a bow hunter when i started out i found the guy that kind of mentored me and and bow hunted for for several years and um so i've always had a more of a passion for the bow hunting side than the rifle hunting side i guess just from starting out that way gotcha yeah that, i you know and i think people know this but i started deer hunting as a seventh grader um or sixth grader, and then I didn't start bow hunting until a sophomore in high school. So a little bit of a later start. I had it's it's funny because I had friends that were bow hunting in high school and even middle school, and now th- those guys don't even hunt, and I'm the one hunting. So it was like they got started a yep. lot earlier, but here I am. I stuck with it. So um, yeah, that's right. And uh, family farm in Kansas uh, is that where you were hunting? Yeah, that's right. So we, well, I hunted a variety of places when I was younger, um, but my dad grew up in in southeast Kansas, so had a little bit of land that he inherited when his uh, when my grandparents passed away. And um, in '93, he bought a farm. We're going to talk about here later in this podcast. Um, I was already gone to college by then. Unfortunately, he bought it at the. I would have hunted the heck out of it if he'd have bought it when I was in high school. But anyway, <laughs> he bought a farm closer to to the town that I grew up in. It was only about 15 minutes away, whereas his home, boyhood home farm was about 35 minutes away. So um, <clears throat> anyway, yeah. yeah, so we had some land around, but I got permission on some different people. So when I first started bow hunting, I was hunting on some public land, hunting on a little bit of private land, just kind of here, there, and everywhere. Gotcha. Okay. Um, walk me through, you know, back in those days, was there any kind of management um, or were you even focused on management back in those days? Oh, absolutely not any management. Didn't have a clue what I was doing as far as hunting even, you know, just got into it. Uh, the guy that was mentoring me 
Um, when I was going with him, I, he was just going and putting me in one of his stands, and he had stands all over. He knew what he was doing, and I was just sitting in a tree hoping a deer would walk by. You know? <laughs> yeah. I, I wasn't grasping all of the context of, of what was happening. And then as I was going out on my own, um, getting some permission, you know, setting up, I guess you get, you're evaluating the area and trying to figure out some, some bottlenecks and pinch points. And, you know, I did all the typical early starter, even though I was 17 years old, I did all the typical young mistakes where, you know, I'm going to sit in the same stand for, seven outings in a row on a food plot or I'm going to, <laughs> and magically the deer sightings go down every time you sit there until you're seeing nothing the last three sits. <laughs> yeah. Those kind of deals. But I had some, I had some good hunts and had some success, had some failures, had some misses, had some bad shots, a couple of those in there. So, but Living you know, I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, yeah. And I wasn't hunting on, Again, we didn't own that farm close to town. The the farm, his boy, my dad's boyhood home farm was was more of a bird hunting farm, so I wasn't driving up there and bow hunting. So this stuff that I was hunting on, I wasn't doing any management because we didn't own it. I was gotcha. just there, yeah, trying to figure out where the deer were going. There you go. So, you know, let's let's kind of speed up and and so our listeners, this is kind of a full grasp of Kyle as a as a deer hunter, a deer manager. Uh, you got to your early stages, just like a lot of us, just like myself, where you start out as just a hunter, and then you realize, like, I don't know at what stage it happened for you, Kyle. I'm sure we're going to find out, but for me, it was I grew up a deer hunter. It's a little bit different in Kansas, even southeast Kansas versus southwest Missouri in the in the mountains, uh, the Ozark Mountains, where for me it was. I started watching once I got hooked on hunting, and I got hooked on bow hunting i got involved in watching hunting shows and then i realized what i've seen on hunting shows was nothing like what i was experiencing and then hunting shows and outdoor magazines told me food plots and these things were how to grow big deer get big deer in front of you so then we started that thinking that we were going to transform our property and all of a sudden we were going to have big deer and food plots on our own farm um didn't take us long to realize that was a lie uh, or a joke or a major uh, false um, expectations. Um, but at some point in that teenage year, in those teenage years, it was like, oh, we have to change what's going on here because we don't have great hunting. And and a little bit of, about us, a little bit of the knowledge we have tells us that our habitat's poor and we need to do something to change it to maybe have more deer. Um, at what point did that happen for you? Well, a little different story for me. So I, I guess I was fortunate. I didn't, for one, they didn't have all the hunting shows on all the time. Wait, are you not the I same age as age, me? Because I'm quite a bit older than you. So. <laughs> um the unfortunate part, I mean, so you got you get some bad info, but but you were able to get info. There was no internet when I was learning how to do this. You know, yep. now it's people can get info so fast and so quick, and and or your dad teaches you this or that. Some of it's right, some of it's wrong. Well, my dad wasn't a deer hunter, so I a lot of it was just the school of hard knocks and just personal observations, right? Yeah. Um, I was fortunate; I didn't ever fall into the food plot trap too much. Um, 
when my dad bought that farm in 1993, the Paint Creek Farm is what we call it, and we'll refer to it throughout from, you'll hear that. Um, but anyway, you know, we, I do remember at one point, and dad wasn't a, wasn't a big deer, had never killed a deer in his life, but he bought that farm. It's got a little cabin on it, two bedroom cabin. It was just kind of a, he bought it. It's only 160 acres, but bought it as kind of a family recreational place. And anyway, I do remember he, he went through a little spell where he bought some fancy, um, New Zealand whitetail mix or something, you know. Oh yeah. So so now I'm I'm already at K State at this point, and my brother's already working for Kansas Wildlife and Parks as a, a biologist, but you know pretty green. He's just right out of college, and he's way out in western Kansas. And, but anyway, he, my dad plants this plot, and we're all back for Thanksgiving, and we go check out his plot, and my brother looks at me and he's like well these are just turnips (laughs) he paid three dollars a pound for turnips we can buy the you know it's one of those typical deals you got sold a yeah it is it's a fancier version of turnips but it was still just turnips that's right (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's amazing how much that happens yeah and and so i guess i was fortunate though because Throughout that, um, 1994, I was hunting that farm. And by the way, so during this, I'm, I'm going to K-State. So I'm up in the northern Flint Hills. So I'm seeing big deer in, in big open spaces that don't involve food plots. So I, I never really fell into this food plot. Track. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and then so I'm the fall of 94, I said, hey, I'm going to bow hunt this new place. I'm just going to bow hunt it some on the weekends when I'm home, you know. And uh, this is a pretty neat farm. I'm going to try bow hunting a little bit. And, well, that year I saw the, the biggest deer still that I've ever seen on the hoof. And I had him at 15 yards. I needed two steps, and he's dead. I'm drawn. Wind's right. Everything's perfect. He's a non-typical. I'd have been in a magazine. I mean, this is a 200-inch non-typical. Looks like two hedge trees on each for antlers. It's just <laughs> crazy-looking deer. And just like giant bucks do, I don't know what happened. Everything's perfect, and he just bolts, you know, something. He figures it out and doesn't take the last two steps, and and he's gone, and I never see that deer again. But point is, I guess, I'm looking at this farm, looking at the habitat, and we're not doing food plot stuff, and we got a deer like that on the farm. So yeah, I, I was fortunate to never have to suffer through the, the whole food plot is the solution to everything. Yeah. Well, that's good. You're like the 1% yes. of America. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, man. Well, what about back back in those days? Not to get sidetracked off deer. Back in those days, uh, quail population better then than it is now? Oh, absolutely. Um, 1993 on our... The other farm I was talking about that my dad grew up on, the Blue Mound Farm, we'll call it. Um, opening day, we had a 15-covey day. Five of us killed our limit. We were done at 2 o'clock. We had 40 dead quail. Wow. Um, 1994, that same farm, we had a 7-covey day. And by 1995, we had a 1-covey day. So that was the that was the beginning of the end. What, what was um, happening right so fast during that time frame? 
and that was well so that was on our own farm which was really discouraging yeah so 93 was the big 93 flood in kansas uh-huh those those birds had already produced so it was good for that year but it but it really hurt them for the following year gotcha um 94 was another wet year so followed two bad or you know bad hatch following that rough late summer flooding um and then I think it was just everything combined at once. Um, you know, some of the neighbors took out some habitat. We kept looking at stuff saying, well, we're not doing anything different. Well, we weren't. We weren't. <laughs> That's part of the problem when I hear people say that. We're not doing anything different. Yeah, you're not burning. You're not doing anything different. Yeah. We weren't burning. We, we had just been enjoying the quail being a byproduct, and they'd been there for 40 years, and, and we finally hit that magic moment where some neighbors had converted too much stuff to the point that we weren't producing quail on the neighbors anymore and we were kind of the only game in town i think and you, you know, know roundup ready crops really started rolling we've got a permittee farmer on that track that started planting roundup ready crops um so we don't have weeds in our crop fields anymore blah 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 the story goes on and on but yeah you know you bring up an interesting point I and mean, we've said this before but uh, we're not doing anything different, um, and you can plump that in as being focused on doing the same stuff year after year after year and never doing anything different, never changing your practices. Uh, I think with quail, and you can back me up on this, but uh, with quail, they're on a lot bigger, they're under a magnifying glass with compared to a white-tailed deer quail you have to do you're constantly adding disturbance you're constantly trying to manipulate the pro, uh the the habitat to to make it more conducive for for quail to a point where if you don't do anything it's just you just as soon as you stop the last practice it's just gradually getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and that can happen in just a few years to where you go from a lot of coveys or a and in this day and age, it's not even a lot of coveys. It's maybe a couple of coveys to you're only seeing a few birds. Um, but a white-tailed deer is the same way. It just can't, it doesn't typically happen as fast. The time frame is much longer because they're a lot more adaptable. Um, they're, they're not as, their habitat requirements aren't as specific as a, as a quail. Um, so we see this a lot where if you buy a property and you don't do anything, the trees are going to get more closed canopy or um, you're, the fields are going to grow up and go from early successional to more young forest to um, they just gradually get worse and worse and worse. So if you're a landowner listening and you do the same things over and over and over every single year, you just go and plant your food plots or you burn during this one month um, your your habitat's getting uh, worse and worse and worse as time progresses. You need to add those disturbances and, and change things up and not just burn during the same window, um, not just plant food plots, not just do Project A. Anything to add on that, Kyle? I, I agree 100% um, that it's managed chaos is what you're looking for. You know, before we were here, this stuff, this natural communities were managed by nature. Yeah. And that's chaotic. There was wild, crazy wildfires with 9% humidity. And then there might be, you know, three-year drought. And then there might be two years of super wet 
<laughs> floods and it's to to replicate natural disturbances it's managed chaos and we yeah. can't get into the habit of of the same practices all the time do you ever you know that that blue mound farm uh the same time turkeys exploded and of course you know the old wives tailor <laughs> turkeys are eating all the quail yeah well no but we were letting stuff that was scrubby that when i was in high school in the 80s had quail in it you know and it didn't happen in three years i'm not suggesting that it went from scrubby to to turkey trees, but it all just happened throughout that same period, and that was the three years that they fell off the cliff. You know, over a decade though, we had scrubby hedge trees grow up into, you know, or hedge sprouts grow up into hedge trees. All of a sudden, there's turkeys roosting in this stuff, and um, you know, right before our eyes, we just weren't seeing the change because it was right there before our eyes, and it mm. was. Yeah, it happens on a lot of people's property, and they wake up one day and say, "Wow, what happened?" Well, we haven't done enough. Yeah, worked at it enough. There's not a, a, a when you you guys when you first came on a podcast first time, we talked a lot about um, you know the farm practices in the let's say 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, where it may have been a smaller property, it may have only been 40 acres or 80 acres, and it may have been their only income. So that landowner. His family lived there, and they had some cows, they had some goats, they had some hogs, they had chickens, they had whatever it is, all a whole long list of livestock. But they were cutting any tree that grew up and got of any size. They'd cut it down to sell the lumber. Uh, if there was any kind of tree within the fence rows that got of any size, they'd cut it down and make fence posts. Um, yep. They were they were plowing and and trying to do and plant different things and there were no roundup ready crops so there was all kinds of weeds growing um there was the exposed soil um there was just a whole lot of disturbance in one word i'd just say a lot of disturbance um to where you had that just very uh chaotic landscape um that provided habitat for um quail and and other species at the same time though during that during that window they were also shooting and living off a lot of wild game so the game populations weren't as good as they are now when we're referring to white-tailed deer or wild turkey but um you know you said something there i want to backtrack because it is interesting you talked about on a small window um the changes that occurred with floods one year to a three-year drought but then I mean, I do not want to even tap into this can of worms, but I'm going to say a little bit because I am kind of a history buff. But you read the journals of, you know, through the 16, 17, 1800s, um, and it talks a lot about our environment or our climate. Um, and even going from a 12-year window where it was really, really warm, so it was a lot more conducive for forbs than it was grasses because a cooler environment was more conducive for these native grasses. So that's what they talked about, the buffalo or the bison. What really made a great environment for them was we had a cooler climate, so we had a lot more grasses. Therefore, the bison had tons and tons of forage to eat. Um, and then during, you know, we went through windows where it was really, really warm. And so it got more conducive for forbs. Uh, I'm not sure if you've ever looked into that, Kyle, or read into that stuff, but uh, it is something that's that's very interesting. Even on a very microscopic year-to-year -year point, we have different disturbances to even a 100-year 
time frame, there's a lot of different uh, disturbances that would change and make a very chaotic environment. Absolutely. And, you know, you can get down to a really fine scale. And, you know, I know most of the listeners are thinking, you know, whether it's deer, turkeys, quail, whatever. But there's a lot of this stuff. And as natural community managers, we always are worried about all the other species, too. And you can get down into these microcosms that are fascinating. So, you know, you take a a drought year and literally just in a five-acre field or a, a one-acre part of a field, there's going to be places that are, you know, almost no grass and, and lots of forbs right here, and you take three steps over and it changes. Well, there's some type of insect or some type of butterfly or some type of animal a rodent, whatever, um, a reptile that needs that habitat. And so those years are important, and that's when that species flourishes. And then maybe they're diminished. They still exist, but their population's cut in half for the next few years because it's a normal wet year. But the drought year, they explode and something else. There's this ebb and flow of all these species, but that's how it was designed. Yeah, It's always been that way. Um, so all those little things are important, and we don't even know to what level their importance are. The food chains are so complicated, you know, so whatever insects are here or herp, um, herps or whatever is going on means something to something else because everybody's eating something or pollinating yeah. off of something. Or, I always... uh, anyway, it's just fascinating to me, but all those little things really matter. In the, Absolutely. In the I think of a cattle farmer I know really well that talks a lot about uh, of course, he's got a, a non-native thistle, and one of the ways back in the 60s, I think, they brought in um, weevils to try to combat these the spread of these non-native thistles. So we have two non-natives fighting this fight. Uh, the weevils eat mm-hmm. the th- thistle seeds, and he always says, some years the thistles win, some years the weevils win. But overall, over 10 years, it pretty much has all equaled out. Yep. Uh, so yeah. back to back to the deer management though, um, you know we. I hope that's kind of a big picture for people to understand. We're not really, even though we manage for deer, I don't know how many of our clients are are focused more on deer than anything, but it's quite a few of them. Um, it really is not down to we're going to do this for deer. It's we're going to manage the property for the overall health of the landscape. But at the same time, there's a few techniques or different techniques that are more conducive to the deer and manipulating the deer travel patterns so you're a more successful hunter. What year, or I guess what were some of the first things you did, Kyle, that were specifically to try to help the deer? Uh, if we're, you know, if we're speaking on this farm... Um, after I got out of college, um, you know, started working. So 1995, I get my first biologist job. I'm working up at Fort Riley in the northern Flint Hills. Um, I started going back home. So maybe a couple years later, we started applying some prescribed fire. Mm. Dad had bought this place in 93. I'm guessing the people that had it before. There wasn't a lot of signs of any burning. Uh, it was just some guys that had bought it to deer hunt, four guys, um, so late nineties started applying some prescribed fire. Um, we also did 
he had CR. There was CRP already on it, but it was fescue CRP, and we we moved in and um, killed out the fescue. Kept it enrolled. We're able to re-enroll it, but kill out the fescue. Plant it to warm season grass and forbs. So helped my dad, you know, drill that and get all that set up and going and work. And that was. We wanted to do that anyway, but that was one of the conditions of even keeping it in CRP. Those Some of those original contracts back in the 19, I think it was 85, they allowed some, unfortunately, some CRP to be enrolled in fescue. Yeah, isn't that um, nuts? So, uh, yeah, well, and you know, at the time it was just for, wasn't, had nothing to do with wildlife. It was all for soil erosion. And, and yeah. I suppose, you know, it did, it did that job, but, but anyway. So yeah, those were the first late '90s. We converted stuff from fescue to warm season grasses, and then and then started applying some fire and, and some units. Um, and the, and I was hunting it real sporadically, um, so wasn't getting to see a lot of how the deer were using the area. Um, turkey hunted it real sporadically because I was able to hunt. You know, you're kind of in a pinch. You you. I could hunt up at Fort Riley or I could hunt. So it wasn't, again, it wasn't like Missouri where you can just hunt anywhere in any county in the state. You had to draw for tags. You have to pick a unit to hunt in. I mean, it was quite a bit more limited in, mm. until the last 10 or 15 years. So wow. um, I, if I committed to hunting back home on that farm, then I was out for hunting, you know, up at Fort Riley where I was working. So. Oh, gotcha. But some years I would. I'd do, you know, maybe if I if I got an archery tag in one unit, then I could buy an um, um, antlerless rifle tag. I did that a couple times just to be able to hunt the farm, you know. So. Gotcha. Huh. I never, I guess I never considered how much of a pain that would be if you're, if you're living in the Flint Hills and seeing giant deer, but then at the same time, you want to hunt your own farm, it'd be kind of difficult to decide. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that yeah. first world problems. Uh, yep, exactly. <laughs> I don't know which place I'm going to hunt. Oh, gosh. So, uh, you know, let's fast forward now. And uh, you killed a great buck this fall. And, uh, you know, let's let's go through that, that, sto- that scenario. You live in Missouri. You still have a family farm in southeast Kansas. You've got a family. When do you decide? Time is limited. So when when is when's the time you head to Kansas? Yeah. So every year, let me let me back up a little bit. So a coworker and myself. Um, oh, we've been doing this off and on for ten or twelve years, probably. Um, typically, that. Just depends on how the calendar falls, but I'm usually looking at that November third, fourth, somewhere in there. November fourth through the tenth, fifth through the eleventh. You know, that's somewhere in there. That's when we're usually going. Um, depends on, like you say, family activities. So I got three daughters; only have one left in high school. So um, I'll, there's times I'll, if I'm over there on a weekend in October for some reason. I may sit in a stand, I may get a morning hunt, and then I'll go around and, and check stands, make sure everything's good to go, I'll hang cameras, you know, I I typically have a weekend that I kind of go get everything going. Uh, sometimes I'm over there in August, some years I, I try to get 
some food plots in. Um, some years I don't, just depends on um, family and time. And if I'm on a, you know, whatever, work schedule, everything piles into it. So anyway, we're usually looking at that, that first week in November has been pretty good to us. I typically, if I, if I really can pick, I want I prefer a half moon phase. That's just me. Of course, if you're going to be there for five, six days, you're going to end up running into either towards a full moon or towards a, a new moon, but, and to each their own, everybody has the certain moons they want to hunt. Uh, but but when you're planning ahead like that, you know, you and Matt talk a lot about you're looking at the weather and waiting for that, that cold front and that certain <clears throat> big drop. And obviously you can't do that when I'm scheduling a trip and putting it on the calendar two months out. So That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We, we just pick a time frame. And, you know, it, it's really enjoyable because, again, it's got a two-bedroom cabin on it. It's just a neat place, a little wood stove, you know, it. It's just a neat farm. Uh, it's got a creek runs through it, Paint Creek runs through it. Um, just a really neat place, and um, we just enjoy the time over there. But obviously, there's a goal. We're, we're trying to, to kill, you know, a nice mature deer. Um, give you a little bit of, a, I guess, background on this farm. So a buddy of mine, not this buddy, a different buddy, uh, 20... Uh, 20, 2011, maybe seven, eight, eight, nine years ago, killed a 157 on this farm, and a nice, really nice deer. I'd been actually hunting that deer for two years, and he shows up first time he'd ever hunted there. He shows up at noon. I'd already been there a couple of days, and I, I draw him a map of how to get to the stand. I was gonna sit in it if he didn't show up that day. He wasn't sure what day he'd get there. I draw him a map of how to get to this stand, and he kills that 157 that night. So, <laughs> nice guys finished last. Uh, That's right. Know, but oh, but anyway, I was I was happy for him. So, my point is though, so a nice nice deer. Yeah, this is Kansas. This is only 12 miles into Kansas from the Missouri line. So, uh, if you're listener, you know some people are into what. That's the biggest deer has been killed on that farm. I did see that giant non-typical, you know, 10 years before that. But um, we usually would have a, a 150 plus on camera for the last, you know, whenever I get kind of serious about hunting over there every year, 15, 12, 15 years ago. I'd have a, a 150 plus on camera, usually a couple 140s. Um, but, you know, it. I don't have 180s, 190s. I haven't had those. Um, it's only 160 acres. No bow hunting pressure north and east, uh, but but there is rifle hunting north and east. Do have bow hunting pressure west and south. Gotcha. South is is kill anything. Bow hunting pressure. The west, luckily, is a guy that was formerly from Iowa. He's quite picky, so you know he's just looking for mature deer. So. Hmm. Fast forward ahead, um, actually a uh, hiccup in the middle. So used to have, you know, um, what I would say three to five shooters a year, you know, mature. And and what I'm saying, to, again, to each their own, what I'm calling mature deer, you know, a four-and-a-half-year-old or older. Um, some people it's five, some it's six, whatever. That's <clears throat> whatever makes a guy happy, I'm not going to not going to rain on anybody's parade but for me and and this farm this is kind of what we're looking for mature deer and we we consider four and a half or older that's 
that's what we're after. If we think we've got a four and a half that has a ton of potential to, whoa, oh my gosh, then it can go on the no-shoot list. But anyway, 20, 2012, massive EHD die-off in that part of Kansas. And it really put a hiccup in everything for the next few years. Um, just, you know, that typically targets bigger deer, unfortunately, older deer. And we just we just weren't seeing the deer on camera the next few years. Hmm. Um, now, you've talked forward. a lot about uh, in the past with me in conversation that you still kind of feel like that 2012 EHD die-off has still kind of affected the farm uh, oh, in yeah. 2019. Oh, yeah. I mean, it ta- when you're talking about trying to get deer to four or five or six years old, obviously there's a, there's a long progression of, of, of filling back in. And, and it didn't just kill bucks. It kills doe. So our doe numbers are down. So now your reproduction is, is lower. So this whole exponential factor, right? Um, so... You know, move forward to 2015, um, biggest deer on the farm, um, a nice 10-point that, that's uh, a nice four-and-a-half-year-old deer. That's, that's the biggest deer on the farm, and I stick him. I kill him, great deer, put him on the wall, 132-inch deer. Nothing gigantic, but, a not, hey, I'm thrilled with it, put him on the wall. Yeah. Um, and it, the next year, and... Uh, I've got a big eight on camera, biggest deer on the farm. I stick him 133 inches. He's a five and a half year old deer, good mature deer. I'm not going to be bashful about shooting that deer ever. Yeah. Um, 133 inch eight pointer is, is a heck of a deer. Uh, but that's the biggest deer on the farm shot, shot him again. So obviously it's not helping us get deer to 140 or 150, but at the same time, either I'm not hunting those years or I'm, I've got to be willing to say, Hey, well, if I get that deer and those, you know, there was a couple of years in there, we only had one or two hit list bucks. That's it. Yeah. Um, and again, on a 160 acre farm, it ain't people bad. say, well, heck I'd, I'd be thrilled to have a one or two hit list bucks, but we were just used to having, you know, five or six. Mm-hmm. So fast forward to this year. Yeah, I go over there. I get stuff set up. Uh, October hadn't didn't hunt a single day. Um, get the cameras set up. Did plant some food plots. First year I planted some Stratton stuff um, and got a lot of good pictures. A lot of deer use. I was really thrilled with the legacy blend and the use that I got on that. Um, so I we go over. I go over November fifth. My buddy doesn't show up until that afternoon, but. Uh, that first morning I hunt and, and have a good hunt, and there's a little bit of rutting activity. I have a little buck running a doe right past me. I see a, I pass a, you know, a young 115 inch. It seems like we have quite a few of those. The you know little basket eights, 105, 110, 115 deer running around, and and then I see a pretty good eight that uh, looks young. And so I get down and I pull my camera cards and, and check everything and my buddy shows up and I don't want to make a point and I know you guys know this, but I think this is really important. You know, we spent probably well over an hour, two hours because I don't have time to go. I'm not over there. I, I don't get a chance to go through photos every, you know, few days or so this is it. This is the first time I'm getting to look at 
inventory what deer I have. And I've just sat this morning. So I was sitting at the kitchen table there in the cabin with my buddy, and we really scour through the photos and identify what bucks we think are mature, what bucks were are going to be on the hit list. Um, not just based on antlers, based on, you know, what body size, body condition, what we think is mature. And we identify four shooters. So we're like, hey, this is this is looking pretty good because it's been a little lean the last few years. So we were pretty happy with what we were seeing. Nothing in there was gigantic. Biggest deer was probably a 140. Uh, bottom end was a, was a deer that was palmated a little bit, had real short brow tines. Uh, more to come on him in a minute. But anyway, ha- but all these deer, you know, we're thinking four and a half to five and a half year old deer. So, oh wow, pretty excited. Yeah. So, one, of, you know, here's a, a perfect example. One of the one of the deer on the hit list is a, a big, nice eight. Probably probably only scores 130 inches, but his body looks like a steer. I mean, just a tank of a deer. At least a five and a half year old deer. He's got a broken brow tine. It's not going to help him score, but I don't care. I mean, if that deer comes by, yeah, he he's a mature deer. And yeah. again, to each their own. If some people want to set a 150 limit, that's up to you. If you want to set an age class limit, that's up to you. If you want to get thrilled about shooting a 95-inch deer, that's none of my business. Whatever anybody wants to do on their farm. So we go out that evening, and we my buddy has a – a new buck that we don't have on camera, um, two steps from getting shot and takes off chasing a doe that he didn't know was there. One of those deals, welcome to hunting the rut, right? Yep. But but this is my buddy's got a you know a one one fifties on the wall, a couple one forties, and he said this was every bit as big as his his one fifty five on the wall. So we added a, we got five shooters now. <laughs> Wow. That deer obviously was not living on us. Those The other four, uh, even just being 160 acres, had lots of pictures of them. So I was pretty excited about that. Mm. This this giant 150s was obviously somebody else's deer that was just rolling through because it was a rut. And that's the glory of the rut. I'd yep. much rather shoot my neighbor's deer than my deer, right? <laughs> and let my deer get older. But Bonus bucks. <laughs> And then we got a couple others in there that uh, had a had a buck that big mature body. He's got a, a four on one side outside his ears. Really not. I mean, would have been um, you know mid one thirties. I think this deer is probably a solid four and a half year old deer. But then on his other side, he just has like an eighteen inch blade straight up cool looking deer one of those that man this deer really needs to go probably but now that i know what else is on camera i'm not sure i'm going to put my tag on that deer so yep uh, anyway hunt progresses we hunt we have great hunt uh hunt several days and lots of action uh we also had uh we've got a young eight that we think's two and a half really nice deer turns out that was the one i saw the first morning and i saw him the first evening i saw him the second morning uh, the fourth day I pass him. Um, and this is why back to the whole discussing this stuff, it's important to sit down with your hunting partners or whoever and, and know who's on the list and who isn't. I've got a nine point 
that's probably a mid 120s, upper 120s deer that I think is two and a half years old. And I got an eight point that's about the same. I mean, really nice deer, really nice potential. They're just young. And so made it clear to my buddy, hey, these, these two are not on, you know, here's our hit list. And those are absolute, you don't even think about it. You don't get invited back here if you shoot one of these deer. So, <laughs> well, turns out I have that young eight uh, multiple times. I have a chance to shoot him one night. Well, again, this is why it's important. Lots of times, you know how it is when you're hunting and, and a deer comes, you know, a deer's grunting and here it comes and you look up and you see antlers and, and you stand up and you draw your bow and you you bleed or grunt to stop him. And I mean, this whole process, you got three to five seconds. That's not enough time to evaluate a deer's body and, and determine age. And, and you get this instant moment of, I've got to do or die. This is it. I just stopped him in the hole and I've got to take the shot or not take the shot. And that's yeah. not, not okay. Whereas, you know, this, this broken brow tine buck, my buddy saw him, didn't get a shot at him, but knew, Hey, that's the deer. And he's on the list. Um, we saw, I saw that young eight. Well, my buddy had the young eight a couple days later, and he's texting me, boy, uh, this is really taking a lot of restraint not to shoot this deer. <laughs> but he knew because we had discussed it, and it stood underneath him for seven or eight minutes. Oh, yeah. Um, so those things are really important. But uh, he, had, uh, he had some neat deer come by, had that big blade buck come by, um, and course didn't didn't shoot him um i've got to take my niece and nephew rifle hunting there i take them every year uh, i will say because it's my niece and nephew want him, nephews in high school nieces in college you know uh, all bets are off then i do have rules about what can be shot and what can't not with them and again so my own farm i can do what i want um i hope the young eight or nine don't walk out for them not to be mean, but <laughs> yeah. I, I prefer that doesn't happen, but I'm sure not going to sit there and, and tell them they can't shoot them. So. Yeah, no doubt. No uh, doubt. But anyway, um, last, second to last evening, my buddy has this, this palmated deer, so the number five on our list, um, and he just can't ever get a shot at him. Nice deer. Um, and he tells me that. He said, you know, that deer, he's not as big as we think he is think he's four and a half. We're both pretty sure he's he's eligible age-wise by our classification, but he said, ah, he, he's got one-inch brow time. He's just got a lot of issues that aren't going to help his score. And I said, well, that's fine. I don't, you know, whatever it is, what it is. So the next morning, it's the last morning, Sunday morning, this is it. We're wrapping it up. And, and I, I would have a, a couple chances maybe to sit over Thanksgiving break, but this is for the most part it, which doesn't matter. I'm still hitless buck or nothing. Um, yeah. I don't need the meat. My, my kids kill meat deer. I don't need the meat. So. Yeah. Any, anyway, have a good morning and sit there, and uh, I think it's about 9 o'clock, and, and uh, I look, and here comes, I can tell, big-bodied deer. I'm like, well, that's a buck. Couldn't even see his antlers yet. Grabbed my bow. And immediately I knew, uh, then I see the antlers. I'm like, well, that's Paul, mate and i knew the deer so and it was one of those do or die he's trotting along the edge of a, a crp field you know he's i don't know if a doe had went through there several hours before it, it hadn't happened while i was in the stand but you know it was grab the bow get ready and 
and I got to take this shot, do or die. And, and anyway, got him. He stopped and, and made the shot and didn't run too far and, and bagged a, bagged a nice buck. Not a great scoring buck, but that's okay. He, he met our criteria and I'm thrilled with it and don't regret the shot at all. And, um, that, that's what it's all about. You know, it's, there you go. it's management and it, it's management of the herd. It's management of the habitat and it's, and it's enjoying the time, whether it's with family, friends, yourself, whatever. Yeah, absolutely. So talk to me a little bit about um, your place here. Now you, you mentioned it, 160 acres. You've got CRP. How many acres are in CRP? CRP, oh, it's probably 70 acres of CRP. It's in four different fields. So this okay. is really broken up Yeah, between some timber chunks and draws in between and, and then the the river running through it. And how many acres are timbered? Um, legit oak timber, um, not a lot. Probably uh, maybe only 50 acres, and then the rest of the timber is is riparian, so lower ground, you know. Hackberry, mulberry? Yeah, well, over there it's big, giant ash trees. We do have some hackberries, but, I mean, ash trees that are I don't know, hundred and some years old, some oh, giant wow. silver maples. Gotcha. Um, yep. So one thing you did this past summer was some bedding thickets. How many bedding thickets did you put in? Yeah, I just messed around. Let me backtrack on that a little bit. So one thing I noticed, you know, when I first started hunting that farm, there was a couple main bedding areas. And this is back in the nineties, right? And and predictably deer moved in and out of these bedding thickets and and i hunted accordingly and and utilized those to my advantage um but those have grown up over time uh, yeah with with no chainsaw management a little bit of fire but no chainsaw management so you know you move forward 20 years and guess what those aren't getting used as much anymore yeah and uh so I felt like we were becoming more of a pass-through farm. We didn't have a lot of deer living on us anymore. Um, so I started putting the chainsaw to work, and I only put in one this past okay. past season. I've got some more in mind, but it already changed. Um, this deer actually came, I don't know if he was in it, but he came from exactly that direction. <laughs> um, the <clears throat> And the food plots, too, having better food plots, we kind of moved them put them to the to the middle of a farm we only have two we're going to add another one next year um trying to keep deer on us longer you know yeah with 160 acres it's tough but if we could the more hours we can keep keep them on us the less hours they're running around maybe getting shot by the neighbors so Uh, yeah yep and it's just uh it's always a work in progress you know obviously we talk about it every week but whether it's chainsaw work or burning or and I'd done yep. some cedar removal and different stuff like that, but gotcha. hadn't really worked on those bedding thickets. But gotcha. Going to do more of that. Just did a little this winter and going to do more of it. Oh, there you go. So you've got, it sounds like a very fragmented, very diversified farm. You've got that kind of mid-level, tall, uh, when I say mid-level, we're talking, you know, native grass, four foot tall, five foot tall, uh, yeah. bedding thickets. So I'm sure they grew back up. You cut in, when did you cut in the first, uh, that bedding thicket this year? Yeah, I don't know. Was that February maybe? So uh, what did it look like, uh, the last time you were there 
Um, of course, it's an area you want to stay out of. But I know you poked your nose yeah, into you, it at some oh, point. What I it mean, looked like? Yeah, it had quite a bit of Forbes coming on in it. Uh, I, I was in there. I took some pictures in it. So maybe late August. Yep. And I was over there messing around with food plots. Had a lot of golden rods. I did have some briary bramble stuff coming on, and awesome. And some stump sprouts. You know, I treated some stuff. I left some untreated and hinge cut a few things. So it was looking pretty good. There was I put a camera in there, and I had deer use. There was some browse, you know, pressure in there. You could see. So pretty neat to see. One one thing that I'm kind of fortunate with. I mean, I'm still going to mess around with more bedding thicket stuff, but, uh, you know, having those CRP fields, there's lots of times I can sit in stands and I can see out into a CRP field and, you know, all of a sudden a deer just appears. Well, it's because he just stood up. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a fair amount of bedding in those CRP fields where they can lay there and get some nice sun. Yeah. uh, So that's, that's helpful. Something else I didn't mention, and I guess it's neither here nor there. Most people probably do this, but, um, you know, on 160 acres, not a lot of ground, but I've got eight different stands set up uh, because I don't, I'm not going to sit. I'd prefer not to sit in the same stand twice when I'm there for four or five days, if possible. Yeah. I don't care if I do see a big deer. If I am out of that stand, I, if I can, if the wind's right and I can sit in a different stand the next day, I'm doing it. Um, and the first two days we were there, this is why you need multiple stands. We had northeast or southeast wind. Well, how many people put up stands for east wind? Not yeah. very many. <laughs> but yeah. I've, I've had that happen enough times. We've got east wind stands over there. So. Yep. It's, anyway. it's definitely important uh, to have those east, to have a stand or multiple stands for every single wind. Um, I think that's definitely for Matt and I this fall, not to make a, a plug cause there is no affiliation or, uh, sponsorship if you will. But that's why we have, we have permanent stands in place, but then for, we have permanent stands in place for every single wind. But at the same time, we have those saddles to where if yep. it's like, we've got, I don't know, let's just say five stands for Southeast winds. And we get a southeast wind. It's like you know, there's just not many deer moving in those in those in uh, around those stands, and it's a southeast wind. And I'm not going to go just hunt in a stand just because that's our only option. That's when we jump into those saddles, and it's proven to be a a very effective effective way of hunting for us now. To to a point where there's some days where I'm like, nope, I'm going to a saddle because I would just rather sit in a saddle tonight than in a junky tree stand. Yeah, well, my my buddy always brings a climber, and in okay. fact, so the we've got two stands set up for east wind, and I utilized one the first day, and then a different one the second day, and he used his climber. Yeah, and actually using his climbers where he had that that one fifty plus come through. So gotcha, uh, gotcha. Yep. So what's the overall projection or future plans of the uh, Blue Mound Farm? The the Blue Mound Farm, or is that not the farm? You, the one sixty you're hunting is that not the Blue Mound Farm? Yeah, the one sixty is Paint Creek Farm. So okay. there you, you know, go. Just continued. I've got um, I've got some cedar removal to do on another a piece of timber that I really haven't messed with. Um, actually, I've I've developed a little plan. Uh, you guys call it closed edge feathering, but yeah, uh, basically just kind of walling off a little piece to navigate the deer. Uh, I had two shooters one one evening 
walk right up the gut of a piece of oak timber that put him about 75 yards away. And apparently a doe had rolled through there. And this is, first one walks past at 2.05 and the next one's 2.30. I got in the stand at 1.50 or something. So mm. doe must have rolled through there before I got in the stand. And I watched that happen twice. Tried grunting that, you know, get them to stop, but they were not coming off that trail. And I thought, well, that's never going to happen again. <laughs> There's a fix for that. So, yeah. you know, just things like that. Um, always got burning planned. I try to, I usually burn a couple units every year. Um, that farm is interesting with the CRP, turkey hunting wise. You know, CRP is great. We got all the nesting cover. We're it. In the, yeah. In the neighborhood, right? Yep. You got, but if you got CRP that has native grass four foot tall, you don't have anywhere for turkeys to strut. I can tell you that. <laughs> so yeah. It's, it can be a, if I don't get a field or two burned every year, I don't have any preferred strutting zones. Yeah, yeah. they'll strut a little, little in the timber, but it becomes a critical tool to, hey, I've got to make sure i got somewhere for these birds to strut if I'm going to spring turkey on over here. So. Yeah, absolutely. What are, what are quail numbers out there like uh, right now? On this, on that farm, uh, there's always been a, a covey or two, but it, it's mostly, it's just not right. If you saw the landscape, I mean, it's mostly timber around us. Gotcha. Um, it's really not quail country. But I did hear a covey calling a couple of the mornings that I was, was sitting in the stand, so we still got token quail there. But it's nothing like the Blue Mound Farm is an open landscape. It's way more conducive for quail. Mm. Gotcha. I think that's one of the dreams for Chad and I is to sit at the family farm and hear a covey of quail whistling in the fall. That would be something that we would be very, very excited about. Yeah, yeah. It's always yeah. a nice treat to, to be able to hear that. And then we get yeah. wood ducks. And we always have wood ducks flying up and down the creek where you're sitting in the stand. Hmm. Now we got otters. Missouri otters have made their way over there, so now they're swimming up and down the creek, which I don't care for because – we got a new pond there, well, several years old now, but they found that. Oh, found wiped that it out. stocked the new pond. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but man. Anyway, yeah, well, it sounds like a lot of great stuff going on out there in Kansas um, and a great yeah. kind of uh, uh, story for listeners to know and hear that um, although very passionate, you give the, uh, based on past podcasts and videos, the the appearance that you're a diehard quail hunter, which you are, but you're also a diehard uh, whitetail hunter as well, um, and so uh, definitely a uh, double-edged sword with the amount of habitat work you do, just like what Matt and I are doing. Uh, a lot of the stuff we do are not only beneficial to the deer, but for quail as well, and uh, and so um, you know, that's kind of a segue right into it is, of course, this podcast will drop late November and we are booking up and we have a ton of consults lined out for the, sp for the winter and spring. So if you're interested in having, uh, Frank, Kyle, myself, Matt on your property, shoot us an email at info at landandlegacy.tv. Um, and we will work to get on your property to not only improve the overall habitat and landscape for deer, but uh, small game, big game, whatever it is you're focused on, we can help you do it. Um, Kyle, 
You got anything else you want to add before we part ways on this podcast? Nope, always always enjoy it. Yeah, it's a little bit again. a little bit different this time. Uh, you know, we've the last podcast was very uh, talking about a, a habit a landscape that we saw, a farm that we saw in southern Iowa, and you know, a lot of the stuff that we that that farm was a lot of timber uh, in the portion that we're really trying to focus on, and here we are shifting into an area in southeast Kansas where you've got kind of a mixed uh, a mixed landscape but for our listeners in the future you're going to hear a lot of since kyle and uh frank's uh, a lot of the work that they've done is a grassland focused um management style you're going to hear a couple podcasts coming uh this winter on managing grasslands for more deer and uh, there's certainly some things you can do and before you ask it's not plant more eastern red cedar um and so I'm very excited to sit down and chat with you guys about that. And uh, hopefully our listeners that are from those areas of the country will be tuned in and ready to hear it. So anyway, guys, yeah. thanks for coming on or thanks for listening. Once again, Kyle, thanks for coming on. You bet. Thanks. All right, guys. Once again, um, if you could leave us a review on iTunes or recommend us on Facebook, much appreciated. Check out our store shop landandlegacy.com there's some new merchandise dropping very very soon we just put in some new colors for our uh for our turkey hats so please go check it out help support us as we continue to bring information to you peace out guys yeah.